Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC, and this episode is a Pillar and Ground confession episode where we seek to further understand and apply the truths in our Westminster Confession of Faith. Today we are studying Westminster Confession of Faith 8.3, Jesus, our guarantor, full of the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to look at three things, the anointing of Jesus with the Holy Spirit beyond measure, the perfect active obedience of Jesus, and Jesus, our guarantor. First, the anointing of Jesus with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. 8.3 says, in his human nature, united to the divine nature, the Lord Jesus was set apart and anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The reality of the fullness of divinity dwelling in Christ did not negate the need for the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit-filled one, the Christ must be thoroughly equipped to take up the highest office of all, mediator and guarantor. The hope of the Messiah was always on one on whom the Spirit rested and worked. Just consider three places in Isaiah. Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 59.20.21, And a Redeemer will come to Zion. You may know in that passage, he's looking for someone who will come to Zion's redemption and aid. And he says, a redeemer will come and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you, my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. Or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forever. You can see there a Redeemer who has the Spirit upon him. And then, of course, Isaiah 61, 1-4, a passage many understand and are familiar with. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That picture in Isaiah 61 again, that when the Messiah comes, the spirit will be upon him. And so Jesus comes into the synagogue in Luke 4, having previously been baptized in Luke 3, where the spirit descends upon him. And this takes place. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news. He reads more, and then he rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant and sits down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You know, soon after that, they tried to run him off a cliff. You see, Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. 
As the confession says, the Lord Jesus was set apart and anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. The hope of the one who would come and redeem Israel would have the Spirit upon him, and Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. When you see Jesus working powerfully and mightily throughout the scriptures, it is not because there is a compromise of the distinction between his human and divine nature. For the most part, during his earthly life, Jesus conceals his divinity. The transfiguration would be a moment where it's revealed. But for the most part, his divinity is concealed. No, so so when you see this display of power and wonder in his work, it is because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit and his dependence on the power from above. It is not him mixing the natures. Jesus walked on water. Jesus raised people from the dead. Jesus restored sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. So were, were those manifestations of power a result of his divine nature? Or was he doing that in his human nature? If we say divine nature, we compromise the distinction of the two natures. Those works we see Jesus doing are because of divine power, the Holy Spirit. Clearly in the Bible, the power for all miracles comes from God. Elijah, Moses, apostles, prophets, when they bring fire out of what is soaked, when they part seas, when they raise the dead and heal the sick, they don't do that because they're divine. They do that because the power of God is at work in and through them. And thus the confession states that Christ was anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit without measure. Consider further that in the New Testament, we do not read about Jesus performing miracles until after the inauguration of his public ministry, after his baptism at the age of about 30, after the Holy Spirit descended upon him and anointed him beyond measure. Jesus may have had the ability at any time to call upon the power of his divine nature to do whatever he wanted to do. Matter of fact, he was tempted with such on the cross by one of the thieves. But key to his mission was to fulfill the law of God in his human nature as the second Adam. And as the second Adam, he is empowered and dependent on the Holy Spirit and fulfills such a mission, which takes us to the next idea, the necessity of Jesus' perfect, active obedience. The confession notes, In him the Father was pleased to have all fullness dwell, so that being holy, blameless, and undefiled, full of grace and truth, he might be completely equipped to fulfill the office of a mediator and guarantor. That language of holy, harmless, and undefiled emphasizes the necessity of the active obedience of Christ in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. For our redemption to be accomplished and applied, the law had to be satisfied by a perfect man, not by God or an angel. In our justification, we are redeemed not only by Christ's death, but by his life. His life of perfect obedience is crucial to our redemption since one man 
must fulfill the demands of the law for others. Sinclair Ferguson beautifully states, Christ's sinlessness is as astonishing as his resurrection. Imagine, he says, he loved every minute of his entire life. He lived every minute of his entire life loving God with an undiluted and perfect affection, with a mind devoted to the Father, with no other desire than to obey the Father's will. The perfect and active obedience of Jesus is so important. Satan, in Matthew 4, was not trying to get God to sin in the temptation in the wilderness. That would have been futile and impossible, a charade. Thus, it seems wrong to think that Christ's divine nature made it impossible for his human nature to sin. If that were the case, the temptation tests, assuming of the responsibility of the first Adam, would have all been charades. And one writer notes, this position protects the integrity of the authenticity of the human nature. It was the human nature that carried out the mission of the second Adam. Yes, Satan did everything in his power to corrupt Jesus and to tempt him to sin. Satan tempts the Christ, fully human in flesh. He was tempting him according to his human nature. And Jesus, as fully human, had to pass the test to be the full and final guarantor of the covenant blessings for the church. Jesus perfectly passed the test, meaning not only no action of sin, but never a desire for sin. In order to sin, a person must have a desire to sin. And Jesus' human nature throughout his life was marked perfectly by a zeal for righteousness noted in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. His desires never changed, as the confession notes, wholly blameless and undefiled. John Owen is helpful in his exposition of Hebrews as he states this, Christ was also like unto us in temptations, but herein also some difference may be observed between him and us. For the most of our temptations arise from within us, from our own unbelief and lust. But from these things, Jesus was absolutely free. For as he had no inward dispositions or inclination unto the least evil, being perfect in all graces, and all their operations at all times. So when the prince of this world came unto him, he had no part in him, nothing to close with his suggestions or to entertain his terrors. Jesus' temptation is real. His fight against temptations that came from outside of him was true, a battle, a test he passed. But he never desired sin, he never acted upon sin, and his sinlessness is indeed as astonishing as his resurrection and as essential as the crucifixion and resurrection is to our redemption. And that's what the confession notes. In him the Father was pleased to have all fullness dwell, so that being wholly blameless and undefiled, full of grace and truth, he might be completely equipped to fulfill the office of a mediator and guarantor. Without the perfect act of obedience of Jesus, there is no perfect mediation or guarantor 
of the blessings of the covenant. But indeed, he is our guarantor, our mediator, the hope of Jesus. A surety or guarantor is a person who undertakes some specific responsibility on behalf of someone else. The surety is the guarantor, the person who makes himself liable for the default or miscarriage of another, no matter what the cost is. Hebrews 7 describes this hope. Verses 20 through 25, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest, speaking of Jesus, with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests, Hebrews goes on to say, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, Jesus is superior to the Old Testament high priest in the order of Aaron. Jesus is descended not from Aaron, but from Judah. And God, in Genesis 14, established a priesthood in another order, the the order of Melchizedek, a mysterious order. An Old Testament priest in the order of Aaron became such on the basis of a legal requirement, but Christ, as Hebrew says, became a priest by God's oath. You're a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Aaronic priests died. They were succeeded by their sons. But Hebrews tells us Jesus is a priest and he needs no successor because Hebrews 7.16 says he's a priest. I love this. By the power of an indestructible life. He's risen. Thus Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Many Old Testament priests were prevented by death from continuing in office, but not Jesus. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. His priesthood, his mediation, his guarantor is sure because of his perfect life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection. How does this truth of Jesus, our mediator and guarantor, shape us? It brings us unbelievable security. Hebrews 7.25 says that this one, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, our final high priest, our mediator, as the confession notes, appears in the presence of God on our behalf, the work finished perfect obedience in life, finished sacrifice, interceding for sinners who draw near to God through him. In Jesus, anointed with the Spirit beyond measure, perfectly obedient in action and desire, and risen from the dead, in him, our acceptance and our redemption before God is both sure and eternal. Thank you for listening to another episode of Pillar and Ground. We look forward to joining together with you in future episodes.